Today on 1196, journalist and activist Desmond Cole, journalist and fashionista Iman Itobare, and a live performance from the one and only Mustafa the Poet. Be the people. From West Queen West in downtown Toronto, this is 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. Hey, what's up? I'm Saul Guy. Welcome to another episode of 1196. As a child, race issues emerge in the most subtle ways goes eeny meeny miny mo catch a nigger by the toe that stings it hits you in the heart and you're unsure why the issue is do you do anything do you say anything growing up in a small town in the woods of british columbia in the 80s was a trip there was incredible safety yet we were the outsiders and the local cosby show our family south asian family the Sadus. And the Ips who owned Stanley's Chinese restaurant were the only people of color in Grand Forks, BC. Through these families, kids were able to explore stereotypes and tiptoe towards understanding different cultures. It wasn't until I was thrust into bigger cities that I began to experience another layer of racism. It's wild to say, but the racism of my childhood was somewhat innocent. In a way, it was kids acting out what they'd heard or what was forbidden, like swearing or drinking. More on that later, but the cities gave me my first experience with institutionalized racism, with police brutality, with people being scared of six young black boys running through the streets of Vancouver. My time in America in my early 20s provided another layer. I moved through stages of rage and anger as I started to understand the depth and struggle of the black American experience. And I became grateful to how and where I was raised. Ultimately, I'm grateful for my parents, my black American father who left the ghettos of Kansas City, Missouri, and my Jewish mother from the Catskills in New York, who was a practicing Buddhist by the time I was born. Their courage to leave what they knew behind released me from many of the shackles that my peers have had to try and undo in America. The brilliant writer Ta-Nehisi Coates speaks to it as the fear of living with your body being in danger. I completely agree. This fear plays itself out in the bravado, aspirations of wealth as they connect to identity and perceived strength that dominates the Black American male experience. Again, I'm grateful that I've not had to peel away these very difficult layers. I'm grateful for the bruises of my Canadian upbringing. I'm also aware that we have our own unique set of very real issues and, of course, the opportunity to be reflective to acknowledge and create dialogue about these issues that can't be addressed the same way south of the border. Today on our show, I get to spark this dialogue with two Canadians that share a similar upbringing to mine. Coming up on 1196, we talk film, fashion, media, education, youth and the arts. I know it's a lot, but it's all tied together by one important theme, race in this country we call Canada. I had a powerful sit-down with Desmond Cole. I'm looking forward to sharing that. We also have a performance from Mustafa the Poet. took place right here at Deus HQ. And later we hear from Iman Edelbare, an emerging talent in both journalism and fashion. But let's start out with a song from an artist that I've always admired, who's released critically acclaimed and thought-provoking music for years. I'm also lucky enough to call this man a friend and a collaborator. And a shout-out to my daughter, Soleil. Here's something special from the man known as Yasin Bey, a.k.a. the Mighty Most Deaf. This one's called Sunshine. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Dance. Listen, I don't want hate players. 
I don't love the game, I'm the shot clock, way above the game, to be point blank with you motherfuck the game, I got all this work on me, I ain't come for play, you can show the little shorties how you bump and fake, but dog, not to death, I'm not impressed, I'm not amused, I'm not confused, I'm not the dude, I'm grown man minutes, I am not in school, put your hand down youngin', this is not for you. On my J.O. with beats by Kanye, yo My name on the market, your name off the payroll Style fresh like I'm still a day old And it's been like that since the day old I'm on time with a rollie a Seiko Step on deck, your neck, do what I say so Get up or get out, get down or lay low Standing in the shadow of a fabulous man Brooklyn nigga, I am That nigga, that dude Black people, let's move Shout out to my man Talib Kweli Yes, we a topper, topper, shotter, shotter Cause it is deeper, sweeter, richer, crisper Stronger reception and sharper picture Revolve around God and involve with niggas These elements help evolve my scripture And make most of a classic modern figure Brooklyn, it don't matter if you holler or whisper You come and do clear cause I'm right here with ya Ain't gotta edit your slang, I got it, I get ya Yo, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers The lovers, the leavers, the doubters, believers The stayers, the quitters, the bitches, the niggas Rebel gorillas, the ghetto civilians Y'all can feel it from the first to the million if it's extra Ordinary and plain, I walk a thousand paces of light ahead of the game. By the time that you get where I'm standing, I'll be gone. Y'all make moves, but y'all just move wrong. I move in and y'all must move on, cause I move too strong. And I know what my feet move for, make it go without a brand new car. I was fresh without a brand new song, I give a fuck about what brand you are. I'm concerned what type of man you are, what your principles and standards are. You understand me, y'all? Be good to your family, y'all. No matter where your families are, cause everybody need family, y'all. Raise a hand, you understand me, y'all. Everybody need family, y'all. Be good to your families, dawg. Understand. No matter where your families are, everybody need family, dawg. Raise your hands, you understand me, Paul. That's what it is. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Desmond Cole is a journalist and activist who's woven his personal experiences of race in Canada into his work offering a rarely heard and very important voice. Desmond hosts a weekly radio show on CFRB News Talk 1010 here in Toronto. His work has also appeared in The Walrus, Toronto Life, Vice, Now Magazine, and Ethnic Isle. He recently, and very publicly, left his freelance writing position at the Toronto Star after being told by the publication that his activism was against their policy and journalistic standards. In the newspaper's eyes, Desmond was becoming the story rather than just reporting on it. In meeting Desmond, it's clear that he's unwilling to accept the narrative that we do not need to discuss issues of race here in Canada because we are somehow better off than communities in the United States or different parts of the world. Instead, Desmond has been instrumental in bringing conversations about carding, police brutality, and the work of Black Lives Matter to the forefront here in Canada. His defining article, The Skin I'm In, was on the cover of Toronto Life in 2015. Based on the article, Desmond was the subject of a film of the same name in 2017, directed by award-winning director Charles Officer. The film is described as a wake-up call to complacent Canadians. Racism is here. Days before the TV premiere, we screened The Skin I'm In here at Dais, which was followed by a Q&A. I had a chance to sit down with Desmond before the screening. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? My name is Desmond Cole. I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm an activist. I'm from Red Deer, Alberta. 
but my parents are immigrants from Freetown, Sierra Leone. Uh, my parents came in the 70s. Uh, my sister was born at the end of the 70s, and I was born in 82. Wow. You know, they were getting established out there and um, living in a place, obviously, you know, when I, whenever I say that, whenever I tell people Red Deer, you could probably guess what the first thing that comes into people's mind and what the people's reaction is, is uh, some kind of commentary on, hmm, what was it like being black? And for some people, if they're perceptive enough, an immigrant in Red Deer in the, in the 70s and 80s. That's the first thing that comes to people's of mind. Of course, and it comes to my mind personally because I grew up in the interior of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. My father's from Kansas City, Missouri. My mother's Jewish from upstate New York, so mixed family. And we were probably like you, one of, if not the only, uh, black families. Yep. We were probably confronted with a lot, but learned a lot. Well, I know my parents were confronted with a lot. There's a lot that I don't remember from that age. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you hear the stories. I actually remember um, a whole lot of kindness growing up in Red Deer. The only black people that I knew growing up were relatives or close family friends, some of whom lived in places like Edmonton. You have to travel to go see them, right? Um, So you are surrounded by white people. That's your day-to-day. And I remember people like the white women who were my childcare, you know, providers, my caretakers. And of course, they were wonderful, right? So I remember that. I remember growing up in that environment and when my parents weren't there with me, having that love and support. It was only later that the idea that you're different from everybody else, that you stand out everywhere that you go, that your family is different, because we moved from Red Deer to Oshawa, Ontario. And how old were you? Five and a half. Okay. And it would take a couple more years for me to really start to recognize what it means to be the standout everywhere that you exist, in your own neighborhood, in your school, in your shopping mall, and not because there's something wrong with you, but because there's a hyper-awareness about your particular difference. Yeah, it's interesting to where you where it first enters your mind. I have the similar memories of being confronted with things that were, you know, seven-year-olds don't actually know what racism is, Mm-mm. but uh, being confronted with it and having to come home to my father and he began to teach identity and history. I'm grateful that I learned them, but it was because of what was happening socially. Years later, I found out that my father actually was confronting the parents, Mm. having conversations. You know, he used to have a rule where if someone made a comment, I would hit them until I was maybe 10 years old. Years later, I asked my father, well, why would, why would you tell me to hit kids in school? He said, well, you both got taken to the principal's office. I got a letter or a phone call and when it happened consistently, you don't remember this. There was a few boys that this was happening with and girls. And so what you don't know is I went to their houses and talked to their parents because that was my way of getting information. I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, so parents, Ooh. you know, interesting stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, was any of your experiences in Oshawa and starting to understand identity, how much of that maybe inspired you or drove you to start to reflect those stories back as a journalist? Probably a lot in retrospect, but at the time, it wasn't obvious to me how I was taking those kind of experiences in, how I was processing them, how I would remember them later on. I was just, I was just existing in those moments at the time, but I can remember you're in kindergarten or you're in grade one 
and kids are coloring. You're the only black kid. There's a mixed boy in my grade one class. I remember that very, very distinctly because that was very confusing for me because I saw this guy who has dark hair and some features that are very similar to me, but his hair is straight where mine is curly. And I'm like, what's, what's going on with this guy? You know what I mean? And I remember that was, that's the one thing is that like, I remember this mixed race kid and always being like almost fascinated by him, but never knowing how to talk about it. Hmm. I remember coloring in grade one and the white kids around you are talking about the pencil crayon for skin color, the skin color pencil crayon in your mind, just blown in that minute. Right. And you have no idea what they're talking about, but you start thinking, well, what are they talking about when they say skin color and how is it possible that they are not talking about me. And I know that they're not talking about me, even though they don't have to say it. Mm-hmm. It's really confusing, right? And so, you know, you look back on those things later. You look back at having friends who are white on the playground and everything's cool with you until something is not cool. And then suddenly they're calling you black boy. I was always black when we were playing together. Where'd that come from? Mm. How come now it's about my color? Mm. Um, and the pain that started to be associated with that book. So, Because when you're oblivious, you're oblivious. But when you start to recognize these kind of things, then there's a lot of pain associated with the recognition. You know what I mean? You found an outlet um, as a a writer, as a journalist, and and you dove into that pain to share it. What was a spark for you, if there was one? Or what can you identify anything that said, okay, I'm going to write about this? Pure instinct. Okay. Just pure instinct. When I was a kid, I started writing in journals and just found something that was very personal and satisfying hmm. for me out of pure instinct. I like that. Um, yeah, so more of, sorry to cut you, but I'm saying you're saying more of just, it was an expression for you regardless. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. It was art. Hmm. It was art and it was healing and it was self-validation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and in a journal from when I was very young, for example, that I wrote, man, you know, I wish I was white. Things would just be easier. And I'm talking like six, seven years old where I'm starting to figure out like, that people are looking at me differently, people are treating me differently, and that I don't like it. Mm. Where I got the idea to put that in a journal, it was a reaction to my world, mm. and it felt right. It felt like, like I said, validating, I think. Mm. I was incredibly timid and shy and nervous and anxious as a child. Um, I was not that person that um, is out there today challenging authority in its face putting the target on my back. Mm. I did the exact opposite when I was a kid. I would hide. Mm. So I go to my room, you know, I cry a little bit, write down on some things in my journal a little bit. That was it. Something happened as I got older, as I started to get into my kind of preteen years, that all of this stuff that had previously been curiosity and then realization and then feeling exposed and upset at the way that you're being treated, at some point, that transformed into anger. That was when I stopped being shy, you know? Yet continued to express through your words. Oh, this is when everything broke open for me, Mm. was like age 12, 13. And this is also around the time where my parents separated. So the anger part (laughs) makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, when I look back, right? Because a whole lot of things in my world that were supposed to be stable were not. And I was angry and I was confused. This is when I started talking and then I never stopped. (laughs) I still have the journal from the summer that I moved to Toronto. 
you the know. First summer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You ever and, read it back? All the time. Mm. And writing about things like walking to a cafe or to a bar to go write and being stopped by the police on my way to go just do some writing, do some art. Because somebody who has all the power in the world thought that that was too dangerous for me mm. to do was to walk from one place to another. Mm. That's the anger coming out. And, and, and so it had to, it, as time went on, it had to find more outlets. It had to get pushed out. I had to get these feelings out or else just have them Explode. blow up inside me. But, exactly. You know, one of the things that in my understanding of the film, Skin I'm In, is really a, um, it's a reference to your Toronto life cover story, right? Mm -hmm. um, about your yeah. personal experiences yeah. with racial profiling. How are those things connected, the Toronto Life article and the film? Well, the Toronto Life article was really interesting because it was never supposed to be about me. That was not how it was conceived. I was approached by editors at Toronto Life in like late 2014. And I had just come back from Ferguson, Missouri. And I was covering the unrest in Ferguson and, and the- Post-Michael Brown. Post-Michael Brown. All the incredible protests and resisting and organizing that black people were doing. And I came home and some Toronto Life editors approached me and they said, you know, it's been a long time since anybody did a big feature in this city about the black experience. And in reading your work, Desmond, we think you might be a good person to try it. So would you be interested? I said, of course. And I did what I usually do as a journalist, which is to try and tell other people's stories as faithfully and as honestly as I can. So I did that. I went out and I interviewed a whole bunch of black people in the city who were doing things I thought were interesting and cool. And I submitted my first draft <laughs> and my editor took a look at it and was like, nah, not what we're looking for at all. And I was really devastated, you know, because that doesn't usually happen to me. <laughs> did you take it personal? Oh, it hurt. But what happened was... I, I kind of took solace in one thing, which was that my editor said, look, you told some stories, some personal stories in this that I actually think are really interesting. Why don't you expand on those a little bit? Mm. And then I started getting scared because this wasn't supposed to be about me. I didn't start doing journalism so I could talk about myself. It's really uncomfortable, vulnerable kind of feeling. But with the support of Emily Landau, my editor, I went there. I started going and digging into my past. I started going and reading back those journals again. I started thinking back and talking back to my family and to other people about experiences that I've been having and that, that have taught me about anti-Black racism in Canada and in the GTA specifically, right? So I tried to broaden out from my experience in that Toronto Life piece to also talk about what's happening for people who are Black mm. in the GTA in Ontario. This film goes beyond that to talk about Canada as a whole, and it's more storytelling. It's more storytelling of the experiences of people that I'm meeting, that I'm interested in their lives, interested in their work, interested in what they have to say about um, the struggles, the successes, the triumphs, the pain, the confusion, the contradictions of Blackness today in Canada, and really doing so from this perspective that says, look, we as Black people in Canada deserve and need and crave the ability to talk about ourselves and our experiences in this country without reference to anyone else, without reference to anybody else. And that last part is critical because there is currently almost no conversation that can happen about blackness in Canada without a direct 
reference to the United States and a derailing tactic of saying, well, it's worse there. Mm. So I disavowed, Desmond, what you and your black people are saying because I think it's worse in America. Now, Saul, most of the people who say this don't live in America and never have and are not black. Mm. So I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but it's very interesting that that's people's immediate response because what you're doing is you're making people feel uncomfortable. You're challenging this well-worn myth about Canada that says that we're so much better and we're so much nicer by comparison, therefore nothing to see here. Mm. And you're saying, no, actually, there's quite a lot to see here. And most non-Black people's immediate reaction to that in this country is to resist it. So this film is about saying, you don't get to do that anymore. We insist on having our own experiences and our own stories in Canada without reference to what may or may not be happening somewhere else. Because for you to tell me when I tell you about my experience Mm -hmm. that you think that somebody else has it worse is to completely disavow Mm. and degrade my experience. And I want to be able to claim my experience and so do other black people for what it is without you telling me that I should be grateful, that I should be happy Mm. because you could be treating black people even worse. (laughs) You're listening to 1196. I'm Saul Guy. After premiering the film The Skin I'm In to a packed house here at Deus, I had a chance to host a conversation in Q&A with Desmond and director Charles Officer in our Toronto gallery. It was clear that this documentary about race and racism in Canada took an emotional toll on Desmond and the crew. Here's his response to my question about where they may have found some joy and healing throughout the filmmaking process. We spent a lot of time together on the road and stuff. These guys would come to my house way too early in the morning before I wanted to see them. You should be sorry. but Moments after a really long day, you've traveled time zones and... It's late as hell. Jake's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And you're at the sports bar at 11.30 waiting for them to bring you the biggest dead animal that they have on the menu. (laughs) And in those moments when we're laughing and we're reminiscing about the day and we're joking or saying like, oh my God, that moment that we captured, those were some of the healing things for me, that made it like, this is why we're doing this. You know what I mean? Because it's very easy to get lost. And this is an experience I'm having lately dealing with depression and a lot of stuff. It's very easy to just get lost in all of this work. But when you're around other people and you're doing something collaborative, you have those moments where you sit down and go, man, that was amazing. That was really profound. I learned something today. I didn't know this. And the opportunity to get to share that with you guys was very meaningful for me. So I just want to say thank you. You know, you've often said Black Lives Matter in Canada is very relevant, um, you know, and because and I know that some people say, well, it's, it's in America. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from you why it's important to Canada. So this afternoon, we learned that... A police officer, one of many police officers in Ottawa who were involved in the killing of a 37-year-old black man named Abdirahman Abdi, that one of the police officers involved in that killing is going to be charged criminally. Three charges, including the most serious manslaughter. Most people in this country don't know that happened. Mm, I don't know that happened. Okay. This is why we need Black Lives Matter. 
Abdirahman Abdi in July was said to have been inappropriately touching women in a cafe. The police are called. This man who everybody who knew him said that he had unspecified mental health issues. He runs when he finds out that the police are coming. The police chase him. Now, he doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have anything. But when they catch him, what do they do? They beat him and they beat him and they beat him and they beat him and they hit him in the head and they hit him in the neck and they handcuff him and they're still beating on this man. And there are photographs and videos of the police standing over this man while his life leaves his body Mm. because they don't give a damn. Mm. You shouldn't have put a hand on him in the first place, but why? Why do you stand over the man's body like his life has no meaning? That was not a national story. Right. We literally put videos of men in the United States being killed on the national news in this country. Mm-hmm. But it was not a national story when it happened in the nation's capital. You know, thank you for that, because it's very, um, well, first of all, beyond alarming. There's kind of, you can't find words for it. America is in such a downward spiral, yes. so out of control on so many levels. It's, you, we, we could talk for hours if we do not bring these things to light and shed light on them, then we will suffer the same fate. That's why the film is important. That's why this, you know, your work is important because that's the discomfort that I think that you're activating, which is necessary. Well, you know, we see also the intersection. So I talk, I talk a lot about Andrew Loku, 45 year old Mm -hmm. father of five who also had mental health illness Mm -hmm. and was living in a Canadian mental health association building that the police responded to and killed him in his own hallway. So the intersection of blackness and mental health, Mm -hmm. the intersection of blackness and queer identity Mm. and trans identity. Mm -hmm. So we saw last year, last summer, Black Lives Matter choosing to interrupt the pride festivities to say, while everybody's out here having a good time, black people within queer spaces are still being marginalized, uh, brutalized and left behind. People weren't receptive to that message. But as you say, how are we ever going to get there if we don't talk about these things? And it's so controversial. It makes people so upset and so uncomfortable. But again, I ask, how are we going to get there? How are we going to really be this country that our mythology tells us always that we are if we refuse? We've skipped all the steps of doing the work. We want the result. We desperately want, we want the accolade. Forget the result. (laughs) We want the accolade. We want the gold medal. Right, look look at us. When we didn't even train, right? Right, right, right. right. So um, I'm very grateful that we could make this film and that we could find people like, for example, Barb Hamilton in Halifax, who unbelievably, after like Dalhousie has been an institution of, post-secondary education for over a century, that somehow Barb Hamilton last year became the first black person, the first African Nova Scotian, let me put it specifically, to get a PhD from that university. 2016, you know, um, I'm so grateful that she would take the time to tell us her story. That story is astonishing. It's a celebration, but it also shows a gap. Right. right. And and we can better understand where we're at and how far we need to go through stories like hers, through the stories of the family that I interviewed in Red Deer, Alberta. Right. 40 years after my parents immigrated there, here's another African family who immigrated. Now, they're refugees, very different circumstance from my family 
But what's it like? Yeah. What's it like arriving in Red Deer in 2016 and it's still having that experience, being the only black family in town, mm. sticking out everywhere you go, people ask you all these questions about yourself, have all these assumptions. Mm. To see that 40 years after my parents and to hear the parallels, yeah. you know, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they made it. I'm glad that they are on their pathway now to becoming Canadian citizens and starting a new life in this country. But it really also shows us how much work we still have to do. There's a, another scene in the film where you have, you're speaking to children and teenagers. Why, why was, was that important for you? I've actually come to realize that it's everything. That children are our future thing. I'm, I'm not down with that. So I, for example, went and did a conference uh, in Black History Month last month with like a couple hundred black students in Peel region. How old? Between like 13 and 18, mm -hmm. high school. They're telling me, and this is a good example of why I don't accept this children are our future thing. They're telling me that they want to organize black history celebrations in their school right now, as they should. And the administration in principle and the teachers in principle are all down with this, except when it comes time to actually do it. Mm. And then suddenly the black students want to create some art. So they're like, OK, um, Black History Month poster. We're going to put a, a black power fist on the poster. And the administration says, oh, that's a symbol of violence. Wow. You can't do that. They want to say black lives matter. And the administration says, actually, all lives matter. So we're going to make sure that Black History Month is inclusive. So you actually have a very, very, very black place, relatively speaking, in this country, in Peel region, mm. where there are all these black students, all this creativity, all this energy. Excitement. Excitement at Expression. being able to see and celebrate themselves and are being told by mostly white teachers and administrators how to acknowledge and celebrate and honor their own history and experiences and being beaten down every time they try to do something that threatens the power and the comfort of their white adults in, in, their, in their education lives. I need to support those kids now. I'm not waiting until they're 25 and 30 and how old Stuck. I am. Yeah. To, to start saying now is the time for you to get activated and get right. involved. Like they're trying to do it now and they're experiencing a lot of barrier. And maybe these teachers and administrators have never taken the time to think why this scares them so much, but they are afraid. They are afraid of black students claiming their heritage and their history and defining it for themselves. And so what power we can instill in young people if we start now, what power we can build in them and to validate them and to help them grow if we start nurturing those instincts that they have today. You're absolutely right. And that, what I would offer as well is that that goes for all the students that are there. Yes. Right. So you have other kids who may not understand or may have preconceived ideas from their parents yes. or, their, or their, the people that are informing them. And all of a sudden it gets unlocked for the people that they are their peer group which is where you're really going to have, you're going to come, you can have confrontation, yes. you can have conversation, you can have, you can have compassion, right? I, and I'm really glad you mentioned that. There will be some people who, when you put Black Lives Matter on a poster, when you put a black power fist on a poster, are just going to say, well, that's divisive and that's racist and they're whatever, right? And the administration of these schools is catering to the ignorance of people who don't want to hear why that matters to us. Mm. But- they're also excluding, as you very rightly point out, Saul, the possibility that some students would see that and say, oh, well, why did you, hmm. why did you choose that symbol? 
Tell me about that. Tell me about that. Where does, does that mean, come from? What does it mean to what you? Does it, thank you. And now we can have a conversation. Because that narrative might mean something radically different to a 13-year-old than it did to Tommy Smith. Thank you. In, in, you know, in the 60s. Thank you. But if you don't know your history, how can we inform, inform now? And, and I talked about Tommy Smith when kids brought this up because when you talk about violence, yeah, white people told Tommy Smith and John Carlos that they were being violent by putting their fist up in the air during the national anthem in 1968, that that was an act of violence. Oh, they we, say we, Kaepernick, we, the same told Kaepernick. Kaepernick too. <laughs> you sit down or you kneel down and all of a sudden you, you're that violent mm. nigger. Mm. And we know that these narratives are prepackaged. Mm. They're always waiting to say it about us no matter what we do. But there are people who, for example, let's take uh, Kaepernick. There are people who took the time when they saw what he was doing to actually ask yeah. questions. Yeah. And those are the people that we're trying to build with. I'm not here for the people who always want to challenge and thwart mm. everything that we say and do. By the way, I also think it's really important to mention when we talk about somebody like Kaepernick, the women in professional basketball in the WNBA, Ooh. they were way ahead of this. Way ahead. Way ahead of this. Any breath. They and, and again, the entire league. <laughs> that was not interesting to the sports media in the United States of America. They did not care because our black women always get there first, by the way, yeah. but they did not care. It took the man doing it and nobody said these women are violent. Now, if they had been exposed to it, I'm sure all the same tropes and nonsense would have come out. But um, the way in which black women took the lead as professional athletes on that first, when they killed Trayvon Martin, mm. when they killed Mike Brown and Tamir Rice, yeah. I think it's very telling that the women in our community took the lead first and were completely ignored. Yeah. And it's the young women that came to me and talked to me about not being able to celebrate Black History Month in their classrooms as well. And, and the same treatment. Exact same thing, being just completely shut down and ignored. Mm. And so like for me to get to document this group of queer identified and in many cases, trans identified women who are out here leading and putting their story first that is a privilege and an honor for me because I know what will happen if things are kind of left to their own devices and that the voices of women and trans people in our communities will be erased. So just getting to be alive right now, just getting to document those stories is like very, very, very important for me. Desmond Cole, an important voice in an important time. Thank you. You're listening to 1196. I'm Saul Guy. I like to say that music is the tip of the spear on the arrow that is culture. Live music is an important part of how we all gather and what brings life into this creative townhouse here at 1196 Queen Street West. To celebrate the launch of our digital channel on iHeartRadio, we hosted a number of performances, including this piece from Mustafa the Poet and producer Francis Scott Heat. At 12 years old, Mustafa recorded a poem about life in his community of Regent Park called A Single Rose for the 2009 Hot Docs Film Festival. He received a standing ovation for the performance, and it was the beginning of a creative career that would take him across the country and around the world. 2012, Mustafa released a self-titled EP, and since has shared the stage with the likes of Nelly Furtado, Janae Aiko, Margaret Atwood, and many more. He's been involved with social initiatives like We Day and sits on Prime Minister Trudeau's Youth Council. Most recently, he's a co-writer on The Weeknd's massively successful album, Starboy. You also might see him on billboards around town looking quite handsome in his OVO gear. 
So here's Mustafa the poet, accompanied by one of Canada's most amazing young producers, Francis Scott Heat, with the untitled gem recorded live right here at Dais. And why is it untitled? Because they put it together right here where I'm sitting about 15 minutes before they performed it. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Dais. Dais. Hey, everybody. How you guys feeling? A little more energy, man. I'm super tired. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, uh, my name is Mustafa. I hail from uh, from uh, Regent Park. Yeah, gangsta. I'm here with uh, my fellow uh, Regent Park artist, Francis. Grew up in the same ends. I appreciate you for jumping on this last minute. He just found these chords five minutes ago. We just kind of wrote this five minutes ago. But I think that's the beauty of like, you know, creation, that it happens in the process. We perform it in the process. And so we're just showing you guys our process right now, you know? I think as a tentative title, it's gonna be called Freedom. Maybe, or maybe not, actually not. There's a lot of freedoms this year. There's like a lot of like, a lot of people made songs about freedom this year, you know? So it's not gonna be called Freedom anymore. Yeah. So, um, Without further ado, we're just gonna we're just gonna begin, man. Thank you guys for being here with us. Managed to believe that it's still together in their chest beating and free oh so many children know no death better than we do whose imaginary friends found a way to disappear too you can't teach them how to love with the heart you never carried with bodies you never buried they play with the soil that people use as their blankets find sadness lurking during weddings and birthdays young kids who've outgrown any child play who can't afford to wear their smiles some days but the days they do they light up rooms and their love and their love and their love falls on skin like tattoos and though they learn of darkness too soon they still laugh when their mother turns off the light and pretends to be a monster in their room though they know real ones exist too they still laugh when their mother turns off the light and pretends to be a monster in their room though they know real ones real ones exist too 
They mistake his passion for anger So he smokes trees his ancestors used to hang on His story repeats cause we reap what we were raised on Young and empty and still getting preyed on He found worth in what destroys self-worth Dies in his sleep and cries in the morning Every day is rebirth I said he dies in his sleep and cries in the morning Every day is rebirth A soul elevates his fate is reworked Trying to stay grounded cracks on the earth Potentials hidden to watch his conscience lurk On battle zones perched As constellations they align with his mind Thoughts of crimes on his mind Recent times on his mind He's lost so many rhymes on his mind He inhales but it's shards that slice his throat Inhales, it burns but he learns to cope Inhales, he feels the fire in his chest He's inhale, the only breaths he has left Can be found with inhale He inhales, he's inhale He's inhale He's inhale He's inhale Oh so can I and if I'm frail and small I cannot shine and they've seen me fall so yours must be fly let them see the wounds under wings that were once sky deprived and I will love for love does not wither like time for bricks and bodies are only costumes for the soul a soul I'll feed and clean and hold and let go for the light I give off lets my community glow for darkness kills the creative mind in blankets we fold and in blankets I tell stories about cultures of gold I read my palms for in them they are told I read my palms for in them they are told Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. France is on keys, man. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy. I'm Deus. Iman Itobare is a journalist, entrepreneur, and innovator in the realm of modest fashion. As a journalist and writer, her work has been published by Team Vogue, Huffington Post, Flair, and Allure. And she's currently a multimedia editor at MuslimGirl.com. She also works as a reporter and producer for CBC News. In addition to being a storyteller, Iman splits her time between journalism and her design studio working on her ethically sourced clothing line, Iman Ido Designs. Iman joined us in the Deus studio before taking part in a panel discussion we hosted in partnership with This Is World Town called In Their Words. So my name is Iman Idil Barra. I am a journalist, a yoga teacher, and a fashion designer. I'm from Regina, Saskatchewan, um, and that's contributed. You're from Regina. Yes, born and raised. <laughs> yeah, um, it was an experience for sure. And I think it's... Uh, a bit of a cold one at times. I mean, I grew up playing hockey. We had an outdoor rink in our backyard. So oh, you are just <laughs> everything that no one expects. This is so good. Uh, yeah. So wait a second. Where's your family from? I'm Somali-Ethiopian ethnically. Okay. So a Somali-Ethiopian born in Regina who grew up playing hockey as a Canadian. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Canada 150, take that. I love it. Um, I think it was just my parents' way of making sure that we felt very much part of like Canadian society. So they put us in everything. I figure skated. I swam competitively. I played rugby. It was just, I don't know what we did. <laughs> and you found your way to storytelling as a journalist. What made you want to tell stories? 
So my parents didn't really speak English when I was growing up. And so I, me and my dad did something that he called playing news. So I'd basically translate CBC News to him. Um, and I mean, it, it's... He was putting you to work, basically. Basically for free. And he really should have paid me. So he owes me a lot of money right now. <laughs> but I would tell him what was going on. And I loved it. Like, it felt like such an important job. Like, you basically control the information that went out. And I it was not only an important job, but was a job that wasn't... Um, didn't really reflect people who look like me or the people that I saw in my community. Um, so then as you get older and you start hearing quest like stories about injustices, you start to wonder, how are these stories getting told if people who look like me aren't the ones also doing the storytelling? And being East African, we come from a culture that's like, we come from an oral history, like we're yeah. all about storytelling. Absolutely. So it just, I don't know, it's a part of uh, my ancestors kind of pushed me to it, I guess. I think it's a beautiful answer. So what's modest fashion? Fashion that's usually geared towards like uh, more like Orthodox Jewish women and Muslim women okay. and like a lot of Christian women. So it's fashion that um, doesn't necessarily involve showing as much skin as we see on the runway. Right. And um, I mean, I'm a fashion designer, so it's right up my alley. But I'm not I never saw myself being like a modest fashion blogger or storyteller or anything like that, because to me, it's not modest fashion. It's just how I dress. There's a lot of assumption around just the way you're dressed right now. Yeah. And, you know, people are like, they assume to know a lot of things about you. None of them are necessarily true. Where's the balance between you? you're doing what is in your heart, but you're perceived by society in this certain way? It's like I'm black and I'm Muslim. So if I don't wear a scarf, I'm just a black girl. If I wear a scarf, I'm a Muslim girl. But the Muslim community still just sees me as being a black girl. So there's really no way of escaping it. So I actually never know if people are looking at me a certain way because of my scarf or because they want to call me the N-word. Like it's like I've just stopped caring. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that's probably the key. I get a lot of questions about my scarf and it's so strange to me because it's literally just a piece of cloth on your head. Like sometimes I wear it as a turban. Sometimes I wrap it. And why um, do you think that is? It's like this hot topic right now. It's like everybody wants to talk about it. That's why so many women who wear a scarf or hijabis are marketing themselves as the first hijabi to do this or the first hijabi to do right. that. It's like it's not a novelty. Like it's literally <laughs> just a piece of cloth in your head that you can take off whenever you want. I mean, most people choose to wear it their whole lives. But it's like and like my scarf story, like I went to a Muslim school my whole life and mm -hmm. most of my life and uh, all my friends started wearing a scarf and I didn't want to be left out. And I was 12 years old and... Decided to wear a headscarf because everyone else did it. I mean, it was typical peer pressure, whatever. And my parents actually begged me to not wear a scarf because wow. I was like growing up in like a post 9-11 world. And I'm from Regina, Saskatchewan. Like racism is everywhere. And to them, it was unnecessary. I was too young. But that's not the narrative that you're ever going to be told. And I think a lot of that is we both exotify the hijab and we make it a foreign thing. But it's not. Because if you look back to the U.S., Muslims have been here since the slave trade, right? Like the first Muslims here were African-American Muslims that were brought by slaves. And yep. they wore head wraps. Like it's not, it's not new. We're just making it new. And I think partially like media is responsible for that, right? And a lot of it is right-wing media that chooses to pick on, I'm just going to be blunt and say it, a lot of really poor white people's fear of immigrants. Um, so the obsession with hijab right now is the othering of other pe of a certain group of people. But I'm just like not really down to let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> you're writing for Teen Vogue and Huffington Post and Muslim Girl. You're, you're working as a reporter and a journalist for CBC News. You're telling these stories across all these really big platforms. How can you help? inform and educate through these these mediums do you think okay so this is maybe an unpopular opinion but 
I, I like know, it already. <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot of like posters that say things like um, love trumps hate and like a lot of nonsense like that. And I think that's a really soft and weak approach. In an ideal world, of course, but in an ideal world, we wouldn't have gone here already. <laughs> so I think that um, approaching racism and bigotry with kindness does nobody any favors. Like we mm. need to have more of a hardline approach with it. Um, mm. So zero tolerance. Mm. Um we need to not normalize what's happening right now because it's it's not normal. It's not okay. We have a president who s- built his entire platform on hatred. We have the people who are like, working for him are like white supremacists who've supported the KKK. That's not normal. Like this country, I mean, it was built entirely on colonization and the genocide of indigenous people. So I think that you can't really say North America belongs to any people aside from the indigenous people mm. who we've already, you know, continuously dishonored by not honoring treaty rights. Um, as journalists, we have responsibility to understand that there is truth and then there is everything else. And we are responsible for telling truth. I think that your story will travel and I'm glad that you took a little bit of time to share it with us today. And I'm looking forward to your talk upstairs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Cool. That was Iman Idelbare. After our interview, she headed upstairs to the Deus Gallery for This Is World Town's In Their Words panel discussion. There were many bright moments from the event, but to close off our show today, Here's a clip of Iman talking about why she writes and who she writes for. And I always say that I write for my 12-year-old self. I write for little black girls because I want them to be able to look at somebody and say, like, you get it. You get me. Um, There's somebody who looks like me who's talking about issues that a lot of people pretend don't actually exist. Like in the Muslim community, we never talk about anti-blackness. And if you do try to talk about it, people either gaslight you or tell you that there's bigger issues that you have to talk about. Like my support system, for the most part, comes from writing for Muslim girl because they create that safe space. I think that's when I realized that people can actually learn how to be allies because even though we're all Muslim, there's there's trans Muslims who are there, there's black Muslims, there are um, Muslim women who maybe don't live the lifestyle that I was raised to believe is the lifestyle that a Muslim woman should live. And it's great because we all have, we all play our roles and we all hold space for each other. And it makes me realize that the work that we do is really important. 1196 is produced by Saul Guy, Reza Daya, Chris Penrose, and Megan Eliza. Follow us at Deus Creates. One, two, three.